Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All The Things podcast, episode number 13, UX Considerations. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. What have you been up to this week, Mike? Uh, hey, Matt. Uh, yeah, so this week has been uh, a lot of hat stuff, actually. Like I know you and I worked on the hat website a bit. We had a couple calls. Uh, we got some a little bit of design work done. I got a little bit of uh, Vue.js stuff done. Uh, we're working on some filter stuff now, and I, I think the site's coming along real good. Uh, I'm hoping we're hoping for like you know release soon. Hopefully, you guys can if you join our social medias, you can kind of follow our uh, our process along because we post some stuff on there for sure. Um, but yeah, like that that's that's about it from the hat side. You know, work work is work. Had some work as well. Uh, Thanksgiving, Canadian Thanksgiving was this weekend. That was a fun time. But uh, other than that, that's it. Uh, what about you, Matt? Uh, so same thing. Uh, we were like, like you said, we were working on the hat website together, and I actually shared a, I think it was a screenshot of the first kind of content block that you'll. Yeah. It was like the kind of the first draft. Like it's very close to being complete because I mean it is just a content block, but um, sort of a first draft of what you should expect from maybe like the aesthetic of the site. Um, we also kind of we like kind of changed some structure around. We had some redundant stuff that was pretty bad for uh, UX actually. Funny enough for this episode, so. Uh, we kind of got rid of that was the actually I'll just explain the situation. So we kind of had a we had like a traditional nav bar as you do, you know, with the you know these are the different categories, these are the different pages I want. And uh, what ended up happening was is we ended up having a what we called a filter bar underneath that, and the filter bar was supposed to filter the content that was going to be showing uh, underneath it, sort of like in a blog style with a filter. But what we realized was that the filter bar was identical, literally identical to the pages that were listed in the nav selection. So when we like sat down, cause it was something that we never caught. Like we had gone back and forth through the wireframe over and over again. And we had like, you know, kind of started learning Vue.js, but it was one of those things that seemed so obvious when we found it. I think it was maybe you that spotted it, Mike, where you were like, why are these two things the same? Yeah. And I was just like, well, that's actually kind of interesting. Like, why are we loading a different page for this one? And why are we like treating this filter differently when the pages themselves are showing the filtered, options i guess is what the way to say that so we ended up cutting the filter bar and we just kind of have like a non-redundant system because that was useless so mm-hmm. one of those so that, that's just something to consider for the listeners is that you know something so obvious can slip through the cracks easily in our case it was because we were learning a new tool so we're learning Vue.js. we also kind of just you know put it together and we added the like i said traditional nav bar so it's so routine that you don't even like really look into it or consider it uh when you put something that's that you know uh i was gonna say obvious but that like repetitive like everybody and everybody these days for the most part has a nav bar so it's something that kind of can definitely slip through the cracks um but i think we'll jump into the sort of the introduction for this episode so this episode is going to be a little bit different so it's basically going to cover the basic ux ideals that we take into consideration when diving into a project um, most of our UX experience is through the use of software. Uh, we've used software throughout our lives and we've been paying attention to the details of how a program flows and what things kind of interrupt that flow or what things don't really work or are unclear. Um, what we're going to be doing in this episode though is rather than specific segments, we actually kind of pulled some what, 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 uh, this person called our rules, um, for UX. So from the Adobe blog, uh, there's a piece from January that's entitled the 15 rules every UX designer should know. 
Um, so we're going to be linking that in the show notes, of course. Definitely go give that a go. But basically, a synopsis is that the article lists 15 rules um, along with a byline, like a very short descriptor of each rule um, in the in the article. And then each rule has a rather long kind of description about like what's going on and and like, you know, kind of describing what the rule is about. What we'll be doing, though, is we'll be listing through the 15 rules and we'll be going through the 15 rules with the bylines, but we won't be doing that, you know, heavy description, that heavy descriptor. We'll be skipping that part. Um, and you guys can, of course, go and go and read that. But what we're going to do is we're going to use the rules and the byline to sort of drive the conversation uh, because it, it has a very good coverage of the whole thing. So let's, I think we should just dive right into the very first rule here. So rule number one is UX is not only UI. And the byline for that one is user interface is a part of user experience. So one of the one of the things that we kind of thought of immediately like regarding this, and we actually had this happen to us just right now, are are glitches part of UX? So what this question or what this rule kind of brings brings to my mind right away is you need to consider more than just the user interface, obviously, and you need to consider you need to consider maybe user mindset, and you need to consider you need to consider more more than what meets the eye, if you will. So for example, if you have a really good design, okay, so if you have a really good design and you have it all planned out so that the user does very minimal actions, you know, everything's really legible, the action buttons are clear, actionable items are clearly actionable, you know, they're obviously clickable, and that type of thing, you know, you do your due diligence. Having a bad or rushed development cycle can produce a glitch, and that is also part of UX. And it's not something that's really considered, at least not when we think. It's not really something that is considered when you do um, UX in terms of, like, the actual design of the actual UX. Um, So you need to consider every little piece. You need to really kind of go through and ensure that you, you fully embody the user experience and it, and that goes beyond the design is what I'm basically trying to get at is it's, it's more than just what you wrote down on paper. It's more than just like, Oh, the user will click this, then they'll click this, then they'll click this. And that'll easily turn this red or whatever it is. It's like, okay, but what happens if the user has a weak connection? What happens if the user experiences a bug in which when they click red, it doesn't go red, it goes green. Is there an alternative solution in the program's options? Is there an alternative um, in any way, is there an easy way for support? Because the is the support team. If you have if you have like a web app and you have a support team, the support team has a UX there too. Is there an easy way for the user to you know submit either a bug log, or is there an easy way for the support team over the phone, over email, or over chat to easily identify those bugs? So it's so that that's kind of what I'm getting at with this first rule is is UX is more than just Get, keep your actions down, you know, you know, keep your clicks down, make sure things are labeled. All that is extremely important. And it's, it's literally the structure and it needs to be done of UX because otherwise people are going to be confused and they're not going to know how to do it. But keep in mind that there's, there's, I'll, I'll call them third party, uh, instances and third party things outside of your design that will affect it and that you need to consider. Uh, I'll just give a, a straight up example. One of our one of our websites, and I've mentioned this before, Free Photos Hamilton has a pretty terrible UX for the people that are like actually submitting pictures. And since we were the ones submitting pictures, I was like, well, the UX and the UI is fine for the user, and it works fine and it's clear. So you know, I don't care about my own UX. But the UX was so bad, 
and it required so much like pre-work of like like formatting photos and stuff like that and it required so much of that that we essentially didn't want to use it and then free photos hamilton like you know stopped having pictures submitted to it because it took so long to do that so that's one thing to keep in mind is it wasn't within our scope we wanted the user to user to have a great ui and ux but we didn't consider ourselves so that's one of the things that you know that that's kind of like the main feel that i personally get from this rule uh did you have anything any comments on that mike yeah, for sure. Uh, it was a good that was a good example of Free Photos Hamilton because it was like a very long multi-step process, and there wasn't like it wasn't a glitch or anything. I think it was designed that way, but um, we were kind of working within limitations of the WordPress template that we were using. Right. So that I think that's what hindered us for Free Photos Hamilton, um, which is not an excuse, but it, we were like you know new developers, and we we thought that focusing more on the user experience, the people that are actually using the site and not the content creators was the right way to go, but eventually it kind of bit us in, in the ass. So yeah, I, I, I agree with that one. That was a, that was a good experience. And the other thing is like just reading this article, uh, a, a really good little tidbit is that the UX is more about the feel the user actually has with your, uh, with your, like the experience of the application or the website. So that you, you want to leave the user feeling good when they're using it. So you, you want them when they leave the application to not have like, you know, a bad taste in their mouth because, you know, something went wrong or something was too long or something was, wasn't clear. You want the user to, you know, go to your go to your site, use it the way it's meant to be used, and then leave the site thinking, okay, I can go back to that site again and be satisfied with my experience. I thought that that was a pretty good example um, for this kind of like, what is UX topic? Uh, just that, that feel is, is an important part of the whole experience. And it brings it all together as well. For sure. Um, but yeah, exactly. So, But other than that, I think uh, unless you have anything back to add, I'll, I'll move on to uh, the next rule. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So next rule is know your audience. And it's, it's a pretty big one. Uh, we definitely kind of like didn't do this at first, but really, really went into it heavily after that because uh, it's really important to know who that audience is. So uh, the, the little byline here is uh, user research is a natural first step in the design process. And that totally makes sense. So when, you, when you're designing any sort of application, whether it be, you know, a small uh, business site or like a site for like an industry, a specific industry, you don't, you don't know uh, what the users will want unless you do a little bit of research and that research could be anything from like a you know a big f a form for people to fill out if you can find like a nice little subreddit that people are willing to uh willing to interact with you you can just approach them and be like listen i have i'm building something for your community uh here's a little form you know four or five questions what would you can you please fill this out for me what would you say like you know those questions could be anything like how many steps do you think you you would do to be able to do this action, uh, would you be willing to do this instead of this? It, it could be it could be many things depending on the on the community. But if you can get you know a good amount of feedback, even that hundred to a thousand people getting you, giving you feedback, even less sometimes obviously because you don't have access to a, a community like that. Even just a couple of people that are really into the into the thing that you're building, those people can be very 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 crucial in building building the experience out, out of it. Uh, like for instance, we built a industry, an industry site for industry professionals. Uh, we already had an old website that people were using and people liked for the most part. And it was very, um, it was almost anti UX in my opinion, because it was very, very content heavy and very, very text heavy, but it's an industry site for industry professionals that need that content and they don't want to go searching for it. So we kind of 
followed that design guideline, gave them a very similar experience with a new design twist on it. And I think it really worked out because we didn't get those calls being like, oh my God, your site's gone. Like the site's completely different now. I don't know how to use it. People came back to it and knew kind of where everything was because they were kind of an old, it was an old school industry. And like when you're designing stuff for people that are, you know, maybe in the 50, 60 year, year range, you don't, you know, that they don't want change. You know, that they don't need to, they, you don't want them to adapt to something completely new because they're not going to. Uh, so that, that was kind of like, know your audience in that situation. Um, I, that's, that's about it for my examples. I think for now, Matt, do you have anything to add to that one? Well, one thing I was going to say, and, and I'm paraphrasing somebody's uh, testimonial and it's been a while. So uh, just, you know, to add some salt into there, but on that particular project that you were discussing, the industry one, um, one of the things, one of the things that did come up was one person said that they were really like, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but they were, they were happy that the website had undergone like a facelift because it made it look like it was still important. So despite the fact that the, uh, that the audience, you know, obviously didn't want change. I think that they, you know, they still, cause we, we only got, or at least I was only sent positive feedback, uh, from a variety of people. And I think that's one of the things is, you know, those, those people don't want change. They still want, you know, the show button here. They still want the, the, the home button here. They still want the buttons where they want. They still want the content the way, but they can still see that it's been like, you can visually see an upgrade. So like, basically what we had done was we made it mobile ready. We made it, you know, full screen. Cause it was one of those old, like kind of left aligned sites. You know, we made it, we made it have modern colors at least. And we made like, there was a, there was a bit of a brand aspect with it where the particular uh, company updated their logo and their general design uh, internally. Like they got new shirts for their employees and that type of thing. So it was sort of like a refresh, but a refresh doesn't need to be um, a redesign. Some stuff we did, some stuff we hid in menus, like, oh, only, you know, 4% of the people using the site or whatever use this menu option. Well, I'm going to hide it in a dropdown that they're going to be able to access. And it's very similar to where they accessed it before. So they should be able to figure it out or at least be walked through it by somebody if they call. But I'm still going to hide it because it's hurting the look, for example. So that's that's just one of the things that, that we did. But I think I think that's important to say is, you know, mm-hmm. If the com- if the company doesn't want you know some crazy full screen um, you know one pager design with a whole bunch of options all over the place you know it is it is the audience uh, that has to basically judge that it's the audience it's the people that are using the site that do it if they want something that's all red like literally the like the pure color red um uh, like in terms of hex code just the double f like literally then do it you know what i mean like you know Mm -hmm. obviously do have some pushback and have some have some you know this is my professional opinion what are your things and if they're like dead set on this i mean they are the audience generally and they know what they want so just kind of do it even if it's a little even if it's something that doesn't quite make sense in this case it made perfect sense because obviously industry people they don't want to spend like you know they're busy doing you know, they're, in, they're busy doing their like regular jobs. They don't, their job is not to work with the website and they want to be able to find things easily. So that makes perfect sense. So mm-hmm. that's just a couple mm-hmm. of notes that I wanted to add there. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, actually, and you bringing that up actually got me another, um, I have another example in my head now. Uh, we work, we, we work with a company that does optical retail environments. And what that is, is that optometrists have shops that sell glasses pretty much. There's optometrists, there's opticians. The opticians are kind of like a step below. They're the ones that are selling and picking out the glasses. The optometrists are the ones doing lenses. So we make applications a lot for the optician to use and for demonstration purposes. Uh, So when you're making stuff for people that are kind of very versed in the subject, 
it's very different than making it for the layman, for the regular user. So when some, like we, we do both, we do making it for the regular person that's just picking out the sunglasses that doesn't know about the technologies that go in behind the lenses and the optician. And when we're doing that, we, we very much change up our design process and the content that we put there and the whole experience because we know that the user is not going to know what uh, RX means sometimes. Like we, we know that the user is not going to know what all the fo- focal focal lengths are, but where the optician knows that and we can, it, they, they use it, they use this application as a supplementary thing to describe to the user. So they, they know what they're doing. We use different terminology. We use a different experience. It, it, it's important to, again, know your audience and that th- these kinds of examples kind of bring it into perspective, I think. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think that's uh, that covers the know your audience section, at least for us. Um, so I think we're going to move on uh, unless, Matt, you have anything else to add? No, I think that covers that one for sure. Cool. Let's let's move on to the uh, you are not the user. And again, I, I agree pretty heavily with this one as well. Because I think we've made this mistake uh, a few times uh, where we kind of designed something for us uh, for like, you know, we designed this thing called uh, list by design. And I, we've talked about it a couple of times on the show where it's kind of like a a bookmark manager, but it has a little bit more function to it where you can add a price, you can, you know, reorder them, you can sort them, you can make different lists of bookmarks. Uh, so it, it provides a little more functionality, but we kind of designed it for ourselves and we we kept the user experience very internal when we were first starting it and without like without knowing that other people are going to be using it for some reason that's how we started doing this but then once we got a small test group even i think we only had like 5 people testing it initially our the experience completely changed so we noticed that they weren't doing the things that we thought they were going to do like uh the the sub the byline for this is testing with real users is an essential part of the design process so like once you once they do the test the test almost everything can change especially when you're just starting out and you don't know the very typical design process and the very typical user experience that people usually tend to use you kind of design based on your own and that's usually not what lines up with the majority of people so that small test group really gave us a, a very like eye wide opening eye wide open experience, and we appro- I think we approach mostly all of our projects differently now just because of that one experience because we know that we're not the users. We need to be able to you know te- have have that small test group to test it, and we now design stuff differently just based on that. So, um, Matt, do you have anything? you would add to that since you kind of work with the test group a lot too. Uh, definitely. So I'm actually looking at list by design right now. It's just opening it up. And yeah. one of the things, or two of the things that were, that I remember explicitly that we never picked up on and that the users picked up on. Number one was we added a, so this is like sort of material design. Uh, it's inspired by material design uh, in terms of the actual look. And yeah. one of the things that we did, well, first of all, this UI that I'm looking at right now is completely different because of the users. And there's a lot of intricacies there. Like they had like a lot, a lot of tips. Like, I don't know where the edit button is. I don't know where this is. I don't know where that is. But two of the things that, you know, really stood out in this final sort of UI that were like later tweaked was we had a checkbox. So for example, right here, we have a checkbox and it's supposed to be like, if you bought something or whatever, you you just check it off. Right here, it's a red square. Some people were confused. They don't know what that is. Like they weren't, they, they were unsure. So we added, like, I mean, this is a small thing, but it, you know, small things, you know, add up. And, and when I hover over it, a checkbox appears when you're in the, when you're in the hover effect. Um, 
like so so people were saying like what happens when i click this red square like people weren't clicking it and that was one of the things that i remember another thing and this was like a a a major one that i actually use now is if i could just click into the settings here um i can see that we have an option where it says um so okay so basically i'll just break this down so basically what would happen is you would click the button you would that you would add a list item okay so you would add a list item uh and it would automatically pull your existing tab so you're at you're at the tab let's say you're making an amazon shopping list you know you're on milk or something on on amazon and you literally click the plus it will automatically pull in the url you can put in your title the price and everything and add it to a list that you want but when obviously because it there's multiple lists in that type of thing we want like people want to be able to view those lists and some people don't want to be able to add it so we added options to when you like when you click add an item that automatically goes to the to the list we never had that before we just mm-hmm. had it so where you would open up the application it would always try to pull your latest and you would have to click a button called view list there is now a toggle switch here that literally says go to view list after adding item we also right. added a dark theme like all these settings are all because of people dark theme right like people people want a dark theme because they thought it looked weird when they had dark theme on their on their chrome that that it would it would not appear like in the same color scheme it was very bright uh, and jarring so we added a dark theme to fit in with more designs and then we always and we have another one that says always show um add new item on boot so whenever you click that button it goes to the old way but now when i when i booted this up it goes to view list you get to choose when i click the button does it show me my list or does it show me items? Like, what does it do? So if you're, you know, app adding things in rapid succession, you could tw- switch that toggle on. But then when you're not doing that and you just want to keep checking your list, you can switch that toggle off. And all of that is due to users. And I use all of those functions off and on, like whenever I need them. Um, I haven't used this by design, like full disclosure for a little while, but but like when I was using it, we were using it rather heavily because like Mike said, we designed it for ourselves. All of that stuff was not in there and we would never have considered it. Same with, I think multiple lists. So there's four or five lists or something like that that you can have in list by design. And I don't think we had multiple lists in there. Mm-hmm. And somebody said like, what if I have a shopping list? And what if I have a shared one too, where like I need to um, have a separate shot, like I have a shopping list that I need to pick up. And then there's like a master shopping list that everybody has. Like, what right. about that? And same with exporting to CSV. We have an export to CSV uh, functionality. That was literally just a, a straight up user request. So it's just something to something to keep in mind that for sure users are absolutely critical uh, to the design procedure. I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that because like because uh, like we like like you said five six people and it it looked like a small app and it radically changed its look and its functionality like radically totally changed it. Um, I'm gonna go on to the uh, next rule unless you have anything to add there, Mike. Nope, nope. Uh, so number four then is um, adapt design for short attention spans. Um, so the byline for this one is don't overwhelm users with too much information. Um, so basically we have, we have our own couple, a couple of like little personal notes here. So uh, short blocks of text because people don't read is an example, as well as keep interactions uh, quick. So people don't, so people, uh, or rather, sorry, don't make people fill out massive forms. Um, so I, it's 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 weird because when I first read this one, I thought, well, that's dumb. Like that was my honest like thing. I was like, well, that's dumb. I don't really consider that. I I because UX is all about like like an, at a very very high level it is all about making the user experience good. Obviously, if something should be quick, that should just be a given. Mm-hmm. But 
thinking about this and, and thinking about how we've designed sites in the past with shorter text or less things, or people, people will constantly ask us for less scrolling. This, yep. like when, like, you know, once I mold through this, I was like, you know what? This does make a lot of sense because I could put a bunch of information here or I could put a list. And same with, same with a lot of when I'm doing research, the best things that I like is, is to see like a, like a, a bullet list rather than reading a block of text. And that's probably due to attention span as far as I know. So this is actually something that, you know, it, a lot of it gets covered in like the base UX um, sort of experience where like people will obviously try to make things quick. Like they're not going to make you do 80 actions just to like post a blog post, for example, in something like WordPress. You know, it's just going to be a few quick actions, obviously, because that's like a routine task. But in the same breath, it's like they're probably cutting out a lot of stuff that was probably like I assume in their prototypes even. Because they they know that people don't want to constantly see the same warnings. They know that people don't want to read the same privacy policy alerts. They don't they, like they don't like people aren't going to do it. There's no way. And it, and whether that's due to speed or whether due to attention span or both, this is a really good point. Is it something that it's? I would say that this would be one of my one of my last things that I would consider because I think a lot of it's covered in the thing. But I like in the original design process. But I will say that this is something that I will consider and do consider. Just even looking at our website, uh, the digitaldynasty.ca, we have we have like the like three content blocks in the front, and we had to put you know like a heading, an icon, and then a small blurb of text before you click to read the blurb because people weren't looking at it. Like people were just mm-hmm. like, I don't know what this is, and like they wouldn't even click on it. And like and like from a from a like a design perspective, if you're looking at just a UI design perspective, the, the objective is met. There's a button there, it's hiding a block of text. You click on it, the block of text shows up, and the user can read it. But if you look at the the behavior of the user, the u the user experience, the UX, you're literally seeing you're literally seeing it unfold as the user's not doing it because they don't want to read it or they don't want to do it. And that again, all of these are obviously going to tie into each other because th- this is you know getting back into the territory of the other rules we followed. But I think it's just something that you need to keep in mind. Like this, this seems like an obvious rule, but sometimes it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 and I agree with it. Um, I'm very much a proponent of like just the, the shortest amount to keep people interested and to get, to get the information across. That's the most important thing. Uh, I mean, for example, about pages, we know the Google analytics on those. They're not, they're not viewed. Pretty much nobody goes to the about page. I mean, people still like to put them there because there's a few people that will be interested in your in your origin story. But the attention span of a regular person is not – they're not going to go to your about page and read everything on there, especially if you write a huge block of text. If you have like a very intricate and interesting uh, about page where you have more like lists, people like lists, or you have more graphic, people like graphics, that's different. But when you have just a big block of text that can – I mean – I say this to our, to clients all the time, like no one's going to read this. We're going to put this there literally for the, uh, the Google analytics so we can pump like, you know, so we can, so we can get some more text onto your webpage so that Google can view it and, and, uh, get some metadata from it. But like, I, I completely agree with it. Usually when, when I think when, when we've designed all of our web pages, they're fairly simple. They're fairly straightforward talking about digitaldynasty.ca it is a very straightforward one one pager almost kind of kind of web page um even uh, what we're designing right now a hat html all the things very straightforward just content blocks right very very uh in, like intuitive to understand you go to the page there's a bunch of content you can click on the content to view more 
That's all. That's all that needs to be. It has to be very straightforward, very simple. If if it was like a you know a whole experience, let's say like oh you go to the page, there's a landing page. The landing page allows you to choose between all the different filters. You go to the different filter, then that those filters then they have to go back from the filter to the landing page to be able to go into the next thing. Those kinds of convoluted processes will make a person jump off your page. And that's not just about the short attention spans. That's about more of the whole UX process, like Matt was saying. Like this is this is something you consider in the whole UX process. But usually, if you're good at it. Uh, and I'm not saying we are, or I am, uh, you'll avoid using anything that will require the user to have a longer attention span anyway. And this will become less important because you will already have uh, thought about that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's all I really have to add to that. I think you, you covered it pretty well there. Uh, I think we can move on to the next question unless you have, or the next rule, unless you have anything else to add to that. No, I think that's good. Cool. Uh, so then the the UX the next rule rule number five the UX process isn't set in stone. Um, so this one this one's a little like pretty self explanatory. Uh, the the byline here is adapt your design process for the product you design. So which this means that when you're designing something for a small one page site for a small one for a small business, it's going to be a different process. That whole the, the whole process of finding out what the UX is than if you're doing it for an e commerce website. Obviously, a person going to a small business will not expect the same kind of user experience when they go to something like eBay. It 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 it's kind of inherent. There's not much there's not much really to say about it other than that because uh, it it should be known. But pretty much, some people think that you learn UX. It's a one one shoe kind of fits all. Where it's not that you have to learn. The inter- every single time you design something, it could be a different, it could be an e-commerce website, but for a different client and they have different priorities. That's a different UX experience, a UX process. Um, it could be a small business one and a one page small business. How simple can get, can that get? It could have a different UX process across the board between your clients because some clients will require more text. Some clients re- want people to be able to, you know, have a one page, no text. Like, how are you going to design a one page site with no text on it other than a logo to make it clear to the user what what's going on there. I think we had we had a situation with that once where the person just did not want any text uh on on their page. They just wanted a big one page like a, a big banner that had their product right on it and they didn't they wanted the user to know exactly what they were doing just based on that one thing. So that's a huge that's a big difference than if we were to be allowed to put text in in it and explain and not explain but like even you know label the product at least. So again, don't think that the UX process is going to be the same across all of your uh across all of your projects, but when you do a lot of projects and you get down some processes for smaller things like, oh, I have a process, a UX process for a nav bar for the specific thing, you can kind of repeat those things. Or I have a UX process for the slider, right? Like a UX, you can kind of take it and compartmentalize it and then you can use use those that knowledge that you know, but don't try to get like, you know, a whole, try to fit for this weird UX process onto every single project that you do the same thing. Don't go step by step every single time. Um, that that's really all I have to say about that. I don't know if Matt, you have anything to add to uh, the UX process. Well, I think I think one of the things that you were saying too, or like that, that was a good example where very strangely, because um, we we had mentioned that the older generation kind of wants to stay uh, like stay the same, like, like not not always. Like that's a that, um, that's a blanket statement. But generally speaking, like especially if they're not working in tech, like they just want – obviously, they just want it to stay the same so that they don't have to learn something new so they can get whatever job they need done. 
But one of the things is, is they have actually adapted generally. Um, and they, they'll do things like what you were saying with the logo where like, we'll have like, you know, some older gentleman or whatever, come up to us and be like, Hey, I have a, I'm selling, I don't know, I'll just make something up. I'm selling lawnmowers and I want to, I want to, you know, I want to sell these lawnmowers and I want you just literally have a picture of a lawnmower with my logo on it and like a repair button. Yep. And it's like, well, yes and no. Like, so for something like that, for example, like we had just talked down about us pages, but something like that might want an about us page to get more text. Something like that might want an about us page because about us pages, we generally find do appeal more to guys who are playing the local angle. If people are really into the local angle and they're, they're trying to play that market, you know, you need to have things up there where you need to say like, Hey, I came from a humble beginning. I'm in my garage fixing lawnmowers or something. So like, so that, the, that UX, that UX and UI experience is totally flexible. It's not, it's not, it's definitely not set in stone. It's, it's, it's all of these things compiled together. And I think one of the things that we, that we like, like, don't be paranoid, I think is what I'm trying to get at. Like, like a lot of people, what will, what they'll do is they'll get like into a situation and it doesn't fit into the 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 template that they've learned. So like they they'd have learned UX a certain way. You know, they go into the real world, they get an experience, or like they have like a, a client who needs something and they want like an experience designed on their website that doesn't fit any of the UX they've learned. And people will start to kind of freak out and be like, oh my god, like I don't know, I don't know what to do. Like I like like I don't know how this UX should work. But it's like you you kind of do though. You know, you know what I'm trying to get at? It's like, it's like, just mold your idea into, into what like they need, like make sure it fits all their objectives and all that stuff. But you may have weird stuff. You may have very little text. You may have too much text. You may have whatever. And that, that being said, budget is also a thing as well. Mm -hmm. So some guys will come up with like, some guys will maybe like, like a lot, a lot of guys will do their research and they'll actually like research for a while. And they'll come to you and they're like, you know, even if they're not in a technical field, they'll have a bunch of technical stuff like, oh, I want parallax. I want this. I want that. I want this. I want a hundred. I want it for a hundred bucks. There's no way. So a lot of the time what we'll do is we will have a UX that is tailored to a budget where the UX is lesser, but all the objectives are met, if that makes sense. So what I was mentioning before, I think it was in the previous rule with the uh, UI like objective, like, you know, all the text is there, everything's readable, the user can order it or whatever, the, the phone number is there, the logo is there, and the brand is there. But it's a couple more actions to do this. It's, you know, there's one less page, there's one less this, one less that. Sometimes that because sometimes it's like, you know, that you maybe you should remove a couple of actions and you know, you should move the pages and you know that you should have more pages or less pages or whatever the experience uh, it, that you're going for like desires. But sometimes the budget just isn't there. And sometimes you just need to be like, okay, if we need to cut this down, like there's a region, reason why there's budgets, right? If it's mm -hmm. like, okay, this is a lower budget, this website is going to look different because I'm going, we are going to put less work into it because there's less money going into it. So like, don't make it look terrible. Like don't, don't self-sabotage, but don't go crazy and be like, oh, let's, let's add all, you know, 30 features to this website or this web app. When normally I would charge somebody, you know, let's just ballpark it. Let's just say a thousand dollars for this particular job. And this guy only wants to pay me a hundred. Well, sorry, but you're going to get a lesser experience out of your app that you're paying a hundred dollars for. And that, that in itself is molding the UX procedure where you're like, okay, I'll make a sacrifice here. 
okay, I'll, I'll, I'll shape this. I, I won't, I won't follow what the school or whatever that I went to UX school for says. I won't follow what this article says to the T because I only have a hundred dollars to work with. So that's just something that's more businessy, but that's something that's going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'll move on to the, the next question, actually, if you want, unless you have something else to add there. Nope. Um, so number six, so this is, this kind of goes in with the other one or they all do, but this one kind of goes in with the whole molding thing is number six prototype before you build a real product. So um, the byline here is the design phase for digital products should include a prototyping stage. So a couple of notes that we made ourselves is that we always make a, at least a wireframe to show the interactions and the pages to clients. So they know at a high level what the experience will be. And then, you know, for a larger client or somebody that requests it, we'll generally do like a click through mock-up that can be made um, before development comes in so that they can see like, you know, what it looks like with some, you know, stock photos or maybe some of the photos they provided us and maybe their logo and their color scheme and that type of thing. That's one of the things that that's one of the things that ties into the other one, like I was saying with budget is typically speaking, when the budget is lower, we won't do a mock-up. So we will still do a prototype, right? So it's still important that you kind of follow this rule and you still have a prototype of some kind, but we'll just do a wireframe. I'm not willing to do a wireframe and a full visual design if someone's giving me 200 bucks. It's like if they're paying me 200 bucks, they need to understand that they're going to get something that's a little more uh, standardized, a little more general. Like we'll call it like like a, more, a little more basic, I guess you could say. Like it's it's sort of like we're going to make you a run-of-the-mill site. Maybe you'll have a, a slider. Maybe you'll have a few posts here. You'll have an about us page, a contact page, and maybe a services page. And there's your run of the mill, but I'm not going to go out and design something totally crazy for you. I'm not going to go and get an, an, you know, an artist or an illustrator to illustrate you more things, uh, like, like, more, like a whole bunch of assets. Like we're going to be using more generic assets and I'm not going to be making you a full click through prototype. Like I'll absolutely, uh, do that, but like that type of stuff will cost more. Um, but one of the things that is key here is that even when you have those clients that do pay less or have a smaller budget, that you really do still need to prototype. So that kind of speaks to the importance of prototyping, um, whether you do the mock-up or whether you do the wireframe, because what you're going to end up finding out is you're going to find like stupid little things or th- even even ways to cut things out uh, that you that you don't need to do. And maybe you'll actually end up, you know, saving some money uh, for your client. Like maybe if the, if the budget is rather large, you could actually cut things out because when you see it visually, um, or um, like, you know, if maybe if you're just like writing it out on paper, if you're writing out a site map or if you're making um, making a flow chart for like a web app or something like that for the workflow of like where the user is going to go and what screens he's going to see, you'll find issues in there and you'll be able to cut those out and you'll be able to cut those out well before you start actually programming, um, well before you actually start developing the actual web app or website. So prototyping is, is very key. It helps with the budget. It helps with, it helps with, uh, um, kind of dealing with the users at the, at this, at this stage It's kind of a critical stage where people like to get involved and then they sort of kind of clients will sort of disappear while you do the development until you have something to show them. So this is sort of like, like a key point in the procedure in which you want to make sure that they're happy with at least this idea because they might have a totally different design direction that they couldn't convey to you until they saw yours and started tweaking it. So this is, this is something that you absolutely need to do. Um, our very first sites, we, we didn't do this and we were getting people like, Hey, like, can we have a mock-up of this? And, and we'd be like, Oh, like, you know, we're just gonna do a basic site. Look at these sites as an example. Um, but you know, sometimes it did work and it did work for, you know, a decent amount of sites, but in general, it's not, that's not really what you should be doing. You should be doing like a full kind of show and tell 
within the constraints of the budget, of course, but still doing like a full show and tell. Um, did you have any comments on this one, Mike? Uh, yeah, for sure. So for the larger click-throughs, I have a little bit more experience with them. Uh, we work with a designer for one of our clients, and they, they do like very large, very high-fidelity uh, click-throughs for mock-ups. And um, we've noticed that we can get a lot of the miscommunications out and a lot of the just the the very like you know simple groundwork in before we can actually do any development which is great i mean like matt said the cost is a big thing like to do a full fidelity click-through mock-up is a big cost it's almost as much as doing a website pretty much uh it's like 50 50 maybe a little bit less than that depending on how complex the process is and uh how complex your code is but for the most part, you have to understand that like clients, you do usually want to see a full rep- rep- representation of the site that they're going to be getting, especially if they're paying, you know, upwards of, you know, in that $5,000, $10,000 range, they want to be able to understand that and they don't want to be able to like be delayed because you, you kind of agreed on something, even though a wireframe, and then all of a sudden it's a different experience than what they got. Um, and I've no, I've noticed that works pretty well. Uh, the wireframe does work to a, to a certain degree. I completely agree with that, especially for lower budget websites. I think you 100% need to do it anyway. Um, but that high fidelity click through mockup is uh, is definitely a go to thing that I've noticed for larger and more more complex websites, especially. Uh, it, it just saves like a ton of time and a ton of money on development. I, like every single time that we've go, gone through, we go through at least like four or five iterations of that high fidelity mockup, which is a lot faster than having to you know go in and redo all the alignments, redo all the design stuff in, in, in the CSS where they can just, you know, the designer can easily go into Photoshop and quickly cut and paste a few things here and there. That, I mean, it, it's obviously more complicated than that. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm like a designer and I, I don't have any expertise in that, but I definitely see how fast they do it compared to how fast I can do the same changes in, in a more development life cycle. And it, it just makes sense to me. It's speed wise. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think you, you covered it pretty well, Matt, uh, prototyping big part of it. Um, again, it's that test group thing too. So maybe don't only show of the, you know, one, your client, the prototype, maybe have a few like close friends and show them a prototype and be like, how would you use this? Uh, and see, you can, you can weed out some stuff there. So getting, getting a couple more, couple people's, uh, opinions is always, always important. Not just one, because your client let's say you have a client that's very stubborn and you have to show him um, that you have to change his mind because sometimes clients can be very stubborn and they think something is right and they're not the professional here. You're the professional. You have to be the one that goes in and convinces your client to do something when it's going to benefit them. Obviously, you bend sometimes because you know they're the ones paying you the money and if they're really, really adamant about something, you're going to have to you know, meet them halfway or something like that. But a lot of the time, make sure to you know give some pushback. Make sure to, to get the client everything he can get out of out of the money he's giving you don't don't make him waste money because he doesn't know better because that can happen a lot too uh so and and bringing up that you've shown this to other like a close close person like a close uh, professional that knows this stuff and he's kind of corroborated your thing and, and then telling him listen show your uh your close friends show your you know spouse whatever and and ask them about these opinions and see what what they say sometimes that can work too uh, so definitely important. Prototypes are important. Um, but other than that, I think we can move on to the next rule. For sure. Yeah, let's do it. So rule number seven, use real content when designing. So, and, and the thing here is uh, avoid lorem ipsum and dummy placeholders. 
So this has been kind of a big thing with us as well. We initially started just like probably everyone else and with doing a lot of Lorem Ipsum and doing a lot of dummy placeholders, whether it be, you know, a block that has the resolution of the item in it or being just, you know, very filler images or content in there that doesn't have anything to do with the actual site's uh, content that you're designing. So what, what we found is uh, that people don't understand it. The, maybe a professional, that you, if you're working with a professional in the industry, they'll understand what you're doing and that you're just like, you know, placing content there as a placeholder. But usually pe- what people will be like is like, why is that picture there? What is this gibberish that's on my page? Like this should be real text. And even though you've explained to them beforehand that we're going to put a lot of placeholder stuff there, they don't understand what that means. They, I don't know what they think it means, but they, it never lines up to what to what what happens so you'll you'll get this weird feedback where they'll like your design but they'll 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 criticize you because you're using the wrong content and it's a weird i find it a weird like uh conflict between the client and and us uh and we try now we try to avoid it i think like most of the time when we do these designs we'll go and find some unsplash images or some other stock site images that actually have relevance to the product and sometimes they'll they'll push back on that and we can say listen this is like this is something we found right off the bat uh and you can obviously change it but at least they have like a little bit of a more uh coherent placeholder and a coherent image of what their site's going to look like as for their lorem ipsum that's a little bit more difficult because you're obviously you need to write content then and if you're not writing content uh you need to ask them to write content which is a whole other issue like we've had you know, we've had to wait months sometimes for people to write a couple paragraphs and it's, it's almost impossible. So what what we end up doing now is we go to their competitor sites and we can kind of pick and choose some of their uh, some of their text for placeholder. Uh, and we and we tell them that up front, like we're, we're going to competitor sites, we're going to pick and choose some text uh, from there and uh, we'll, we'll use it as a placeholder. You're going to have to write your own or we're going to have to like combine a few and make it your own kind of thing like we have to be you have to be upfront, but at least they have some text there that is more relevant to to the to their content rather than a bunch of gibberish that's like you know lorem ipsum latin stuff um so that that's pretty much where i stand on the whole using real content now uh i i believe like when you're doing something really quick for like a small website like matt is saying with the with the lower uh lower budget sometimes you just you can't afford to go in and look for unsplash images look for images that that fit perfectly with the content and you're going to have to use those placeholder images that i was talking about and the client's going to have to understand that if they're paying that like you know the two to five hundred dollar range they we can't provide them the service that they think that like you know the five thousand dollar websites get it's un- it's unfortunate but sometimes you have to kind of like if, if you have that friction and they don't understand that you have to kind of sever that relationship with the client and that happens rarely uh but if it does happen it's not the end of the world because you're not losing that much even though you always want to say yes to all the opportunities you get especially when you're starting out sometimes those opportunities can come back to bite you because you're spending you know way more time on this $500 website than you should be on this $2,000 website that you just got so anyway balance your time always always get that that's kind of not really super relevant to rule number seven with the use real content uh but either way it's it's relevant to the whole process um so yeah, other than that, Matt, do you have any other topics you want to discuss on here on this one? Um, for sure. So this one I'm actually conflicted on. Um, <clears throat> uh, and and this is this is this is like you know for select people. But what I find a lot is when tech enters, common sense exits. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. So 
one of the things that I find with with you know miscellaneous people and like sometimes it's just a, a memory, uh, sometimes it's just like a lapse in judgment or sometimes like they they're just totally clueless. But for some reason, when people who aren't great at tech sometimes will approach, um, they don't decide to use a little bit of common sense and and like to me to me I I agree with the points uh, that that you made um, about like the Laura Mipsum and the dummy stuff like that. But I often will still use them. Now, I, I do a lot of the small business stuff. So, like, you know, part of it's a budget constraint. But one of the things, like, one of the things that I always say is, is that this is a confusion point. This is a point in the in the process that is going to generate confusion. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I am less, I am less willing to invest in time to prevent confusion when confusion is going to happen anyway. So if there's a way to surefire get rid of confusion, obviously that'd be great. But if people are going to get confused whether I use a stock photo or a placeholder, like, a, and when we say placeholder, I mean like, you know, if it's a 300 by 200 image, it's really gray with the text 300 by 200, and mm-hmm. you know, centered in white or whatever. I will still use the placeholder because to me, it's like I went out and I spent time getting a stock photo, and they're confused. It's like it's like that that to me that to me should be common sense, and 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 I think. I think that like that that's just how like that that's like a uh, a point of contention I think with people in customer service. To me, I'm just like this is going to be something confusing to them. I'm absolutely willing to explain it to them, but I'm absolutely in in some cases not willing to change because they're going to be confused. Like they're confused if you put lorem ipsum. They're confused if you take if you take temporary text from somebody else. They're confused if you write content because it's wrong because you're you're not in their industry. They're confused if you put a picture of a tree when they wanted a picture of a red tree. They're confused, like, like, like they're just confused. And, and I don't know why they're confused because it should be obvious. It should be like, oh, a picture that's 300 by 200 is going to go here. Laura Mipsum, oh, they're, they're using this. This is gibberish. This is where my text will go. And I don't know why they fight us on it. And to me, that's like kind of anti common sense. And like, you know, if you're one of those people that are confused by it, like, I'm not making fun of you or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not saying anything because, because whatever, I don't know what it is, but a lot of people, if they're not technical and tech, like I said, when tech enters, common sense leaves. It, it'll be like using a physical calculator that can do all these amazing things. Using a calculator that has the same layout on a screen, they don't know what the hell they're doing. They're like, I don't know how to press the, the number nine. It's mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? Click the number nine. Like, like it, it's 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 to that degree. So this is this is one point that I I agree with your points, where like there are ways to sometimes prevent confusion. And there's ways like like putting real like putting real pictures in, putting this like putting text in, putting this, putting that in is okay. But even even if we get them to write it, which you said could be a month long procedure to write two paragraphs, even if we get them to write it, they might want to change the paragraph. And if we put the old version of the paragraph in there as a placeholder, they might get confused again. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally my my philosophy with this is literally like do it, do it right, whatever you know. If there's a way to prevent confusion with a particular client as you work with them, if you know that they're going to get confused in something, maybe stop that particular thing. But the instant that the instant that I like I dive in, I just go, okay, this is probably going to be a massive conversation. Here's 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 my design. Go check it out. And I know that we're going to have a conversation about the lore mipsum. We're going to have a conversation with the placeholders or the stock photos or the layout, whatever. But I know there's I know it's going to be a point of contention. So I just accept it. I systematically accept it more mm-hmm. more or less because. There is not one size fits all when preventing confusion in this way. Yep. Uh, and, and, and this goes, this goes for IT and everything. It's like, mm-hmm. this is gonna, like people will be like, oh, maybe if I do this, they'll be less confused. It's like, yes, but you just invested an extra hour 
and trying to prevent confusion, which may still happen, which will result in an additional hour of you explaining it. So why don't you just dive in and explain it for one hour instead of trying to prevent confusion for one hour and you're gambling that that additional hour of confusion won't happen. That's that's just, I don't know, that's just how I see it. I'm just like, okay, this is going to be confusing and push. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like whether that's right or wrong, I think that's just maybe like an ideological thing in design or whatever. It's just, it's, that's, that's just my opinion. Um, obviously, if a client does not understand Laura Mipsum, but they understand dummy text, like just you writing something and they're fine with that, even if it's wrong, then of course do that. You know, of course, then you understand that you understand this client doesn't like placeholder images, but they like stock photos, even if they're wrong. Okay. So then use that, obviously. But especially when dealing with a new client, obviously budget constraints and that type of thing, I just, I just I'll just dive into the confusion because I'm like, these guys are going to be confused. Let's get going. Let's get her going then. And, and, and I don't know, I don't know if either you have like a rebuttal against that, but that's just my opinion on that. No, that's, I mean, that that's your opinion. I, I don't have any rebuttal. You can. Um, so I, I think it would be good to move on to number eight then. Yep. Uh, so number eight, keep things simple and consistent. So the byline for this one is the hallmark of great of a great user interface is simplicity and consistency. So we have an example here. So um, we find it confusing when a uh, one-page school website has a navigation um, and then it opens up another page, but it doesn't combine the two. So this is sort of, um, I guess it would be sort of a hybrid between the new, I, I'll call it new age design of having one page in which you know, it's like one very long scrolling page and there's like technically pages like in blocks underneath. So it's like the home page, and then you scroll down, and then it's the about us page and you scroll down and it's the services page and you scroll down and it's the contact us. But it's all in one big like uh, stack, if you will. Whereas mm-hmm. like this is kind of like the hybrid where it's like they have six or seven pages, let's say in the scroll and then you click on one in the nav bar and it takes you to a totally separate page. Sometimes it's a redundant page and it's only that page. Like it'll only be services even though it's one. So like, I agree with that. Like that's, that's rather confusing. Like always keep things consistent. Um, things like that, like, so things like that in terms of design, like, you know, hybrid designs generally aren't great. Sometimes it happens due to budget constraints. Sometimes it happens due to, um, retrofitting an old site. Um, so like, you know, it's going to happen in the industry, but like maybe try to avoid it for this, for this reason. Uh, another thing to, to do it, another thing to keep in mind is a lot of icons happen now. So a lot of icon or iconography, I guess, um, ha- like happens in the workplace now. So it's like, it's, it's like you have like your work area. So let's say you have like, uh, let's say you have like a word processor open and at the top back in the day, you know, there were a few icons, but there's a lot of text. Now it's like mostly text or sorry. Now it's not mostly text. Now it's mostly symbols. A lot of symbols, a lot of icons. So keeping your icons like the, the consistent is very crucial. You don't want to have like a little person icon and then like a little two person icon and you switch what they do. Like one opens contacts and one opens, one opens group chat and you don't want to like flip what they do. So keep consistent across your designs and, you know, preferably if possible, keep consistent across all of your apps and all of your websites, especially if you're the one that own them, you know, make sure that you try to keep it, you know, relatively consistent because otherwise you yourself are going to get confused, especially when you're going back to troubleshoot or add something to some, to a, to a project. You might be like, Whoa, why is this opening up different things? And it's just going to cause you more time. It's probably going to like cost you a little bit of uh, time in terms of support calls if people are confused. So consistency is absolutely key. Um, I think that one's rather straightforward. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have anything else to add to that, Mike. Yeah, I'll just do a quick example of uh, the Google Apps. Like all of the Google Apps have a very consistent layout and very consistent navigation. Uh, I think that that 
that kind of bodes well for them. Uh, like when I use sheets or when I use docs, everything is very much in the same location and I can very easily switch between the two. I mean, Microsoft's the same way, right? Uh, it's just le- like, I think it's a more consistent experience now on on Google than it is Microsoft even. And uh, we'll actually talk about that a little bit more in the web news right? Uh, with the new web news topic. But yeah, I, I think that that's just like a good example that I thought of. But other than that, I think we can just move on to the next, uh, the next rule here. Um, so rule number nine, recognition over recall. Uh, so this one, this one's a little more uh, in depth here, but uh, I think it, it, it goes to that consistency topic as well. So the, the byline here is showing user users elements that they can recognize improves the usability versus needing to recall items from scratch. So, and this is again, what Matt was mentioning with those little icons at the top of a word processor. Everyone knows what they mean now, like the little arrow to go back for undo, little printer, stuff like that. Uh, the, the big B, you know, for bolding, italicized I. So people understand that that is how a word processor works. So if you build a word processor from scratch, put those icons in it. You don't have to explain that B is bold. You don't have to explain that I is italic. People already know how it is. And that's the same thing with web design. So when you're designing a website, people know what a button is. People generally know that if there's a button and it has something like go to content or, you know, uh, something actionable on it, they'll click it. It's a very simple, very unique, like intuitive gesture. Don't try to redesign the wheel when you're, when you're making a button, you know, like don't try to, re- don't try to, go outside the box too much when you're trying to keep your consistent your user experience consistent so that people understand it right away you don't want to have a a whole like you know help guideline for a simple site you want to keep with the consistent consistent layouts yes there's some pretty cool unique layouts out there that have very interesting but usually intuitive uh intuitive designs like even if they're really interesting, these very, very smart people that do these very interesting and awesome and unique experiences, they'll use very um, recallable and recognizable design elements, even when you don't even notice it. And that's that's the you know that's the true element of real good design is when you don't notice the design in the background. You don't notice the the person the person that designed all the user experience for you in the background because they did. When you're using a website as simple as simple as it is or as not, as complicated as it is, someone in the background of that site, someone that made that site thought through almost all the steps, sometimes not, you know, obviously missed some steps and you'll you'll know those. You'll immediately be able to pick out the ones that he missed, but the ones that he didn't, you won't even pay attention to because that is good design. So using recognition, using those recognizable elements, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Like I said, use, use them, know those recognizable elements just by, you know, using the applications around the web, you know, that scrolling gets you to the, to the bottom of the page. Don't try to make it so that when people scroll, they go up. You know, like, don't try to make it when the people scroll, they go left to right. I don't like those kinds of things. That's a preference in my, like, for me, I like it when things are more consistent. I don't like it when you, someone takes over my scroll bar and then all of a sudden, you know, I don't know if I'm scrolling up. I don't know if I'm scrolling left. I don't know if I'm scrolling right. I don't know how fat, like they, they change the, the speed at which I'm scrolling. That's just like my kind of like pet peeve with, with bad UX in my opinion. But um, those are the kinds of things that I would try to avoid keep people used to your design add some unique elements maybe but don't reinvent the wheel so yeah that that's that's pretty much all i have to say for that one i don't know if matt you have anything to add i think that's another i think that's another really like straightforward one yeah. uh, myself um so i think i think you really covered that one really well because I, I like it just 
it just makes sense. And I'll literally give you an example right now. We might talk about this in web news. Mm-hmm. Um, in this in this Skype call, there is a heart icon that is beating. What is that? I don't recognize that. <laughs> I like how if I hover over it, it doesn't show me. Anything it doesn't show either. me anything. I'm gonna press it. Oh, it's an emoji to the Skype call. It's I'm gonna an press em- an emoji. I'm gonna send you an emoji in a Skype call. Oh yeah, look at that. Top right corner. How is that? How is a heart an emoji? <laughs> Put the smiley face. Recognition over recall, folks. Recognition over recall. I put a little crying, laughing emoji in there. <sighs> and it's not like, let, let me clarify what's happening now. This is the new Skype. Uh, I'm sure that some people have already used it. Uh, we're not talking about putting emojis in the chat. We're talking about an emoji popping up all of a sudden in the top right corner where the user's like avatar is. And hovering I, I, over I that for, for maybe a, a couple seconds. I see it in the center because you here. So like where there's right, normally right. like talking heads, like instead of a webcam, we just have icons because we're just yeah. talking via voice chat. So Mike's icon, his chat is his like uh, account icons in the center of the screen, and it'll it'll like change with a little emoji hovering over it for a moment. Yeah, that's what the heart icon does. Yeah, yeah. Matt just sent me a heart. So that it's like come on guys is not intuitive. I think they're trying to add a new feature for people. Without explaining it, which isn't a great idea, but I mean, it worked now in a sense that it created conversation, I guess. I don't know if that's what they were going for. We just it's explained weird... it to everybody now, too. <laughs> yeah, now, we, now now everyone knows, so uh, that's it. Like, So, strange, strange uh, recognition over recall, definitely, for this one. Good, good, uh, good call out. That's, yeah, I just, because I, 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 I remember when I joined the call, it was like, there's something weird about this call, and when you started talking about this rule, I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't recognize this. <laughs> anyway, number 10. Uh, make designs usable and accessible. So de- so the byline for this one is uh, design for a diverse set of users that will interact with your products. And our note here is keep in mind that some users are colorblind um, or even blind. So make sure uh, to follow the accessibility guidelines. This is something that I actually have the least amount of experience with. I do know that I'll, I write a lot of stuff in like regular text. And there's like a couple of things that I did on a few sites where... It allows like sort of like those screen readers to read through the site, but I myself haven't really, again, this is sort of like a UI thing. I more or less did the UI part and a little tiny bit of the UX by like sort of making sure that text was formatted correctly and stuff like that. Um, But I never dove into it and I certainly never, I certainly never experienced it myself. So this is something that I've never gotten users to test. I've never tested, you know. Color blindness is one thing. Like I think that's more systematic, as far as I understand it, where you could, you could have colors that are more neutral to the various types of color blindness, and like that's just like a like you know a one and done. It's like you read, oh, don't use this shade of green, then you don't use that shade of green, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like other things, like 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 straight up blindness and screen readers. I have never, I have never used. So that's a good that's a good question. Is I don't really know how we would. Like I, I don't, I don't have any, I don't have any rebuttal for this because I've never done it, and that's actually an interesting point. Maybe that's something that I could try for maybe some hat content or maybe a future episode. Um, I don't know whether you have any experience with this, Mike, but I, I do not. Uh, I don't really have too, too much experience. I know that there's a very comprehensive accessibility guideline for, uh, I, I think, for the government of Canada and for the, the government of the U.S. Like, they have their own guidelines for accessibility for screen readers and for colorblindness and stuff like that. Uh, I'm pretty sure you don't use, like, you know, green text with a blue background or blue text with a green background. Those kinds of things are pretty straightforward. 
Um, but you're right. I, I also don't have too much experience with this, but this is something that we can definitely look into and maybe on our next site, make sure that we make it fully screen readable and accessible uh, for people. It's it, it should be. It's an important thing because there's a, there's a lot of people that do use the web that aren't fully, you know, they, they, they can't see or they can't hear or uh, they, they have issues with navigation and stuff like that. So we can definitely start look into that more. Um, Maybe we should make that a priority for the next uh, for the next site we build. That'd be interesting. Like even mm-hmm. I don't even know how you would test it. Maybe shut off the screen, have the speakers up, and have a screen reader take you through it. And maybe like see, I don't, I'm not even sure. Like use exactly. the key, use the keyboard to navigate. So that that that'd be something that we might maybe we'll write a piece on or something mm-hmm. in the future because that that's certainly something that is important to be clear, and mm-hmm. we probably should know more about it. Yeah. Um, I think so, we yeah. can move. I think we can move on from that though because we I can't really comment on that. Um, yeah. Let's do it. Number 11, uh, don't try to solve a problem yourself. So the byline for this one is design uh, is a team sport. Don't work in isolation. Um, So this obviously talks to the fact that you should have people that are testing it. You yourself are not the user. Uh, Mike and I will toss ideas back and forth between each other. A prime example is on the HTML All The Things website. We caught that filter bar because Mike spotted like, hey, why is this redundant? And I was so caught up in my own little isolation after doing the... the, um, after doing the wireframe and then immediately going into, you know, start learning view that I just was blindly following my own wireframe. And, you know, again, in a little, in a little bit like of an isolation bubble there. So Mike kind of like comes in and goes, Hey, you know, why the heck is this here? Simple fix, simple thing, obviously would have been caught at some point, but it probably should have been caught earlier. And that'll, that'll happen. Um, Mm. so for sure. So just make sure you don't work in an isolation. I don't know if you have anything else to talk about that, Mike, these are getting more to the point, which is good. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like uh, it's a, a little bit self-explanatory, but it's a very good thing to know. Like working in isolation always, almost always gives you like a very skewed view on your project. Uh, like, I don't know how many times we've had it where like we have, we think we have such a good idea and we kind of work through it a little bit on our own. And then we go and we present it to like, you know, I present it to you or you present it to me. And we like, you know, immediately you have one question that completely destroys my idea or immediately I have a question that completely destroys your idea. So working on something in complete isolation will always give you that like weird skewed, skewed, you know, very positive uh, outlook on your on your idea and bouncing it off someone will not only prevent you from going too far into something that isn't you know viable, but it will also improve your idea because you'll immediately get that feedback and immediately be able to adapt to that feedback. And sometimes it's a positive, like a positive feedback right away, but it's not something positive that you thought. And you're like, oh, wow, maybe I should, you know, focus more on that positive than this positive. And it, it's, it's not necessarily a negative thing or a positive thing. It's just like you need, you need a feedback loop of some kind to be able to progress your application because you yourself are not the epitome of knowledge. Uh, none of us are. And so having a good community around yourself, even ha- like I'm, we're, we're, you know, lucky to have two people in our company. Usually a lot of web developers start out as, as a solo, you know, solo a freelancer. We started out right away. There's two of us, so we could always bounce ideas back and forth. So I think that really improved the quality and the, and the UX of our products because just because of that. But once we, you know, once we started testing with the larger group, that also helped too. So I think I think that's that's about it for that one though. Uh, unless you for have sure. something else to add, yeah. No, I think so that one's covered good. Yeah, let's go to number twelve, and this one again is another I think more self-explanatory one. It's uh, don't try to solve everything at once. 
So uh, design is an iterative process. So think about a design as being not just one block of, you know, big design. No, it's it's many different blocks and that you have to go through. So you have to make sure that you've uh, you've done your research, like your you did your you you've known your audience. You kind of went went through these rules. Like that that's the whole point of these rules, right? So if you if you can if you know all these rules, if you can if you can go through the design process instead of just thinking design as one big thing then you're you're going to have a, an easier time doing it so if you think then make then check think then make then check and you, you you constantly go back to the first part so you constantly you know do do your do your planning then maybe make something out of that planning then check it with someone or check it with yourself or give it to a team they can see it and then go back to thinking go back to redesigning a little bit and then do it again so it's like an iterative process in the sense that it's it's also a cycle it's not linear and there's there's also multiple parts to it so just when you're designing something make sure that you're not design like you're not thinking of design as one big part you finish it and you're done no it's you constantly have to go back even when you're like you're finished designing right you go on to development, you go, you start development and the developer will go through and he'll see something in your design that's either not feasible or for the, for the money that's being offered. It's not, it's not going to be affordable. So he goes back to you and says, listen, uh, I can't do this UX experience for you for this amount of money. I either need more money or I need you to redesign that UX experience just a little bit to make it a little bit simpler for me. Maybe like it, it could be, you know, just, just moving something to, to the same page or having something that like, you know, instead of, you know, flies in from the right, just pops up or something like that. Um, do, do something, do something different so that I, I don't have to spend, you know, 10 hours on this. I can spend one hour. So you go back, you start thinking about it and you make something new and you check. I, I see this happen all the time with my design process. Um, I'm the developer in this case, and we have, we'll work with the designer show. They'll make something, uh, there, there will be, it'll be really cool and interesting, but then all of a sudden, like it comes into like, how much money are we going to pay for this? And then when, when I go and look through my kind of quote that I give them, I'm like, well, I can do this, this, and this, but this, what you designed is great, but I'm going to need a little bit more money on that. If you, if you can budget it, that's fine. I'll, I'll do it. No problem. That'll be like 10 hours. But if you can, here's, here's an example of something that I could do instead. Maybe you can design a little bit better than what I'm saying. So this is it's a constant process design doesn't end i would say with with the end of your like of of this with the start of development it definitely it continues on even after uh which is pretty cool too because you're constantly working together and again it's the it's that don't try to solve the problem yourself kind of thing as well bring in a designer sometimes as a developer you don't want to uh, you don't know design that well, so if you get if you get stuck on a certain part, if you bring in a designer, they'll look at it with a completely different mindset, and they'll be able to help you with placing something, or maybe with like the actual you know user experience part of it, with like which steps to include. Um, it's a it's a very important rule. I don't really have much else to add on it though. That's about it, Matt. Do you have anything? No, I, I was just gonna say that it, it you know just a, one of the things that you could really see in real life is literally that smartphones come out every year because it's the same thing but it's redesigned or designed it's more more refined so there's always a gen one that feels kind of like it has compromises because it does and then literally like you slowly 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 work at it 
And there's lots of people that work in different teams, like to bring it back to web development. There's so many people, like you said, you work with a designer and there's like other people, there's administration, there's like whoever else, whoever else you're working with. There's a lot of people you're working with. And as a result, you will have, you will have this experience where, you know, you do it, you, you maybe you like even pump it out. It's in production version one, but that's just it. It's version one. Now we got next version two coming up where it's the same thing, but we need to like add this feature or change this menu or whatever. So it, of co- like, like don't panic if you're like, fuck, this isn't the best thing I could have done. It's like, no, no, hang on a minute here. Like best thing you could have done in this instance, if you keep working on it, you could work on it forever. So there mm-hmm. has to be a point in which you release it and then you do an iter- another iteration of it at some point. Um, I think I'll move on to the next question here, the next uh, the next rule here, which is number 13. Uh, preventing errors is better than fixing them. So the byline for this is wherever possible, design products to keep potential errors to a minimum. So, of course, this is, again, uh, more of a straight to the point one. But, you know, it's important to say, make sure that you make sure that you keep your errors to a minimum. Obviously, having problems, errors, mistakes, glitches, whatever. Um, we already we mentioned glitches in the first in the first rule, uh, those things will, you know, drag you down. They'll cause problems. They'll make er- they make users angry. You make customers angry, etc., etc., etc. So obviously, having errors is, you know, make sure that you're doing it right. One of the key things I could see is having like a problem, and maybe maybe if you if your program is 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 rather complex. So if you're doing like a web app, and there's lots of screens, or there's lots of this, and there's lots of that, you could have you know, a flow chart. And if you have an error in your flow chart where there's like no way for you to get to the settings screen from this other screen, but you need on this particular screen to get to the settings screen, that's like an error. That's like a glitch, right? So, you know, you need to make sure that that is, you know, fixed and working and everything. So make sure to kind of like, you know, do user testing, do your research, do all these steps to prevent errors. Errors are going to happen, to be clear. It's not like you can prevent everything. And sometimes like, quote unquote, an error might just be that, when you released it, you know, a bunch of these, like maybe it's only like 10% of the population, but that's enough of the population to get upset. They want to use the product in a certain way. You didn't design it that way, but like, you know, sometimes you have to kind of like, you know, bite the bullet and just sort of like redesign a section for that 10% because, you know, you, you did your user testing, you did everything and you, you helped, you helped, um, or you set it up for 90% of the population, but that 10% wants to, wants to change what they're doing. Uh, or like, like use the product in a different way. And therefore you need to, you know, kind of fix it. So, you know, errors like that are always going to happen. Little iterations like that are always going to happen. Um, those are kind of self-explanatory. Um, I don't know if you had any specific examples or thoughts on that one, Mike. Uh, I mean, like just a quick example would be any sort of, uh, user input could cause errors. I think the big thing is that you try to minimize the fact that you're, you're, you're not telling the user they did an error. You're telling them that something happened here's how to fix it. So I think that's that's where this kind of goes into like uh, they put in the wrong email, an email that's already registered and you tell them that this email has already been registered. Here's what to do. You like either recover your password or log in. Uh, and you can kind of do it like two different ways. You can either do it upon validation or upon input. So you, you input an email and it automatically validates as they leave that text box. Uh, or you could do it upon when they actually press the button. I'm of the mind where you should do it when they leave the text box just to get catch it real quick so that they don't enter a bunch of more things and then they realize they can't use this. Uh, you want to catch it as fast as possible and get them to uh, choose one of the options that you give them. So don't don't like don't tell them that this email the the, the email you entered it 
is wrong. Tell them, no, this email you entered is already registered or this email you entered is formatted a different way. Maybe you want to format it this way. Uh, something like that. So it would be, be very um, gentle with the user, I think, with with this uh, preventing errors uh, business and make, make sure to keep your experiences as simple as possible, just like one of our, our rules already said, to make sure that errors are minimal. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think I'll move on to the next one, uh, which is number 14, rule number 14, offer informative feedback. And uh, this... This really refers to showing the user what's happening uh, visually while it's happening. So for like the easiest thing I could say is a loading indicator where something just spins or something like that. So the user knows that there's something going on in the background when, when nothing's going on. So like, I mean, nothing's going on visually for them. So you put a visual indicator when really there's nothing going on other than the fact that there's a server communication happening. Uh, and so you, you show that to them in some way, either it'd be an actual loading bar where it actually reflects the loading or just something that's spinning so that they know that something's happening. Uh, any sort of animations, in my opinion, do fall into this topic. Uh, so any sort of, you know, flying in from the right, flying in from the left shows the user that something's happening. So shows the user that the information is coming not from the page that you're on, but from maybe some other source. I, I like to I like to use the fly ins to show like, you know, any sort of server content that comes in or any sort of content that I have to fetch because it's showing that I'm actually kind of fetching and displaying that content. Um, stuff like that. Not There's not too much I can really add to it because I think animations really does cover this visual feedback Uh section and like we've already had a whole uh topic on animation so if you want you can check out that podcast uh it was pretty interesting so go, go do that for sure uh other than that i think we can move on to the next one of us matt has anything to discuss with this the only thing i was going to say is that is that i think i read a, an interesting i can't remember whether it was a case study or whether it was just an article on medium mm-hmm. but it was like a it was like um for action buttons it was like all like try to use verbs more than just like okay like okay is kind of like you know it can it's it has it has its place but if you yeah. notice like things on windows used to be always like cancel or okay mm-hmm. but it'd be it'd be like well if an error shows up that's not okay so like the yeah. the like it now like now change the button to close and that yeah. sounds it sounds like a very small change but it's very i would say critical um yeah. it's a kind of a critical change in which in which you you're you're guiding the user, especially in some things where instead of you just saying submit form, you're saying send email or send send message or, you know, kind of have the verb, kind of have the action there. Uh, I think that that's kind of a critical thing because that's like that's like feedback. It's like it's 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 more of a what would I say? It's more of a it's a confirmation of what I'm doing before I do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm more confident than just pressing OK, if that makes sense. So that's just yep. one thing. That's the first thing that kind of popped in my mind for that one. But otherwise, I think it's again these are starting to get more uh, self-explanatory. But that's that's good. We're starting to hone in on like you know what UX should be. So mm-hmm. uh, I think number fifteen, which is the final one, I think we can move on to that one. Number fifteen is avoid dramatic redesigns. So the byline of this one is remember, uh, is it Weber or Weber? Anyway, Weber, I'm going to say Weber. It could be Weber. I apologize. Weber's law of just noticeable differences. So our example that we thought of was obviously we discussed this in a previous episode, which is the dig redesign that killed the website. So just changing things for the, for the sake of changing things, you know, obviously if you need a refresh, like we did with that industry site that needed a refresh, it started getting old. It started to functionally not work too great. 
but it needed it needed a refresh, so we did it. But we didn't needlessly move buttons around. These people don't care if there's 18 transitions and the UX is really great from a you know a case study perspective. They want to go to the services page. They want to go to the other pages on the site and they want to know where those buttons are. They have work to do and they have to get it done. So we didn't do a dramatic redesign. We did a full refresh and it was rather obvious, but it was also obvious that you could use the site as you did before with virtually no changes and find what you needed. So that's really critical. Um, one of the things I think with this too is it kind of is the, I don't, what, what this point, what this kind of brings up in my mind is I don't like taking a half step. Um, Reddit to me is kind of doing a half step where they have the redesign and then they're still heavily supporting or like, I mean, or at least there's a lot of users still using the old site. And then there's like some edit pages for mods that are in the old site and other, other, other things for, for um, on the others, like, like there's like there's edit pages that will affect both. There's edit pages that only affect the old. There's edit pages that only affect the new. And sometimes it's unclear what does like, what does what, and it's very confusing. Like I'm even stammering trying to explain it because like it is confusing. Like it's not a good user experience. The UI is old in some places. Like it is, it, in my honest opinion, it's a mess. It's like if you really believed in this redesign and you thought that it wasn't going to be such a dramatic thing as this rule says and you thought it was going to be like a really great and needed thing, then go go all in. But I think they're scared because of the whole dig thing maybe. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly it. But in my opinion then maybe you should have i was going to say like i don't know whether you should do more user research but maybe you should consider not doing it then i don't know that i just don't like the foot half in it's like if you're going to redesign just do it That's yeah the, but again you just do it and everyone hates you like reddit is a very user driven site and like any user will hate a redesign pretty much i mean Anytime Facebook does a major redesign, the you know for the first couple of months is a bunch of people hating on it. But Facebook is so big and so you know dominant that they're not afraid. Like they they know that this redesign is good. Most of the time, it is actually beneficial. Like not to not to praise Facebook, but most of the redesign have made sense. But initially, people will hate it because the, this this button's not where it used to be, and that's you know that's bullshit. So. I mean, it's going to happen, but Reddit is more afraid because its users are very much capable of backlash. Yeah. Very, very intense backlash. And uh, they don't want to anger a mass majority of those users by just, you know, flipping a switch and causing a complete redesign just like Dig did. I mean, they have an exact thing to look at to not do. So I, I think that's why they're doing it. I'll, I'll disagree with you on this one, on the fact on not doing half measures. I'd much prefer, I much I like this half measure that Reddit did. Uh, I'm actually getting used to the redesign, uh, which is like, you know, big from the last time we talked about it because I, I wasn't very into it. But I've, I've been using the redesign since we talked about it. I haven't had too many issues. There's still a couple things that I like in the older Reddit, but it's something I can definitely live without. And I hope that they will just implement into this newer Reddit. So uh, I don't know. That, that's my opinion. I I mean, I mean, we're, we're always going to differ. Like I differed yeah. with you on the one management style one or whatever it was. Um, but, uh, but of course, like 
I think the, I mean, just to close this rule off, but one of the things I read again years ago, I read this thing where they were saying that the reason why Facebook refuses to change some of it, like, I mean, obviously they'll like, you know, flip flop and some, some features here and there, Mm -hmm. but when they do like a big redesign, they say it's because they've done the user research, they figured it out. And usually it's a very, a very vocal minority. Most people will log in and be like, oh, Facebook is different. That's dumb. And then they'll keep using it, forget, and then they'll just keep using it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they don't even realize that there's been a redesign or that there's been a change. And like, there's always these like, you know, I don't know what the percentage would be 10% or less or something like that, or just screaming from the rooftops. And these people are screaming usually on Facebook. So like, I mean, you're screaming on Facebook about Facebook. Are you really going to leave the platform? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And you're going to forget in like two months or a month or a week or whatever. So that's just, you know, dramatic redesigns, you know, have their place, I think. But I would say that they need to be considered very seriously as to whether it's required, I think. Yeah. That's my opinion on that. Yeah, um, that makes sense. I think we can move on to web news. This is a, quite a long episode, actually. I started realizing that around, like, Rule 10. I was like, oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah again, we kind of went into the same thing being like, oh, this episode's not going to be very long at all since we only have, like, one segment, technically. But uh, all of a sudden, we're at the almost hour 30 mark and I haven't even started web news. And it's a big web news, too. So... Yeah, let's get let's get right into it. Hopefully, we don't uh, you know carry on too too long for people, but uh, let's let's cover it for sure because it's an interesting one. Uh, so, web news this this week is labeled Microsoft, and I think a lot of people <laughs> what a, a, lot of what people a label, know, yeah, what a label. <laughs> I think exactly. I think a lot of people will know why we were covering Microsoft this week because uh, it's in the news and the the latest Windows update. Uh, Hopefully hasn't affected any of our listeners, but if it has, let us know how how you're dealing with it. Uh, but the latest Windows update has a chance to delete your user files, and as far as we know right now, there is no chance of recovery. And the user files, what we mean is all your documents and anything in your documents folder. So um, apparently, the desktop's not affected, but stuff like the pictures and videos, if that's in your documents folder, that's affected. So all your pictures are gone, all your videos are gone. If they're not backed up, we're not sure they're they're recoverable. And th- these are the updates that most people, like I'm, I'm assuming over over 90%, have turned on automatically because that's how Windows delivers them at this point. There's not the automatic updates. It's a big thing with Windows 10, right? Everyone, as soon as Windows 10 came out, everyone's like, "What, what, what's with these updates? Like I'm in the middle of a meeting. All of a sudden, I can't uh, skip this update and bam, my, my meeting gets delayed by an hour. Or however long it takes. Like I've had a Windows update take six hours. I don't know what it's doing in the background. It's just doing a Windows update. It's probably reformatting my whole hard drive. I have no idea. Um, but pretty much what this web news topic is going to be is our gripes with Microsoft. So we've had our gripes with Apple. Uh, and we talked a little bit of Microsoft in that one. But I think we're going to go deep into our gripes with Microsoft since we've been using it for so long. And we have quite a few of them. And this is, okay, this is saying from Microsoft fans we like their services. Uh, we, we're going to continue to use them regardless of all these things, even though some of these you might consider to be you know, game-breaking. If you're an Apple user and you hear this list, uh, just, just know that we're very deep into the ecosystem and we, we've, like, we don't experience them very often. But since we've been using it for so long, we obviously have built up a pretty significant list so i'll get right a ux a ux complaint list more or less yeah yeah exactly like the (laughs) yeah the bad taste in your mouth kind of complaint list so big i'll just i'll just go through them and then we can kind of talk about them after so uh randomly corrupt randomly corrupted hard drives unskippable updates uh when the windows store i'm just going to leave it at that 
Uh, troubleshooting <laughs> steps are ridiculous, and we're going to get more into that. <laughs> Microsoft Word Upload Center integration. If anyone understands it, please let me know because I am so at a loss with Microsoft Word at this point. I can't even use it. Yeah, here's uh, my phone number to call me up to help me out. <laughs> yeah, like, please. Like, God. I didn't know I would need, like, a tech support for Microsoft Word. But anyway, we're, here we are. Uh, the hardware glitches in the Surface lineup, I've had a little bit of experience with that. I know that there's a lot of those out there. And then uh, and then another one just, just to throw in there, tablet mode on Windows 10, you know, touchscreen laptops or tablets. It's So those things, like, we'll go through them now. But uh, let's just go through the randomly corrupted hard drives. I think Matt and I have both experienced with this. So what happens is that this is this is the process. Use a laptop, turn it off for the night, go back, open the laptop, it can't boot up. Don't know why. Why can't it boot up? Like, it's not, like, literally, it's just crashing, like, blue screening or nothing. Uh, So you're like, okay, well, what's going on? So you try to go into recovery because, you know, Windows 10 has a great recovery mode, has those... uh, has those recovery partitions, has those, um, you know, restore points, stuff like that. Usually that works. Like, you know, try to do that. Try to do that. doesn't work. Try to go through all the usual, like, you know, check disks, all that. doesn't work. Nothing works. There's literally nothing. None of those troubleshooting steps that you would usually do to restore a corrupted hard drive work because your master boot record has been corrupted with a Windows update. That's... And it, again, the, most of these updates were unskippable up until late, like recently. Recently, they have come back on that, and you can now kind of delay the updates indefinitely, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I've had two computers now that have complete, like I've sh- shut them down, gone to sleep, woke up, and a Windows update has corrupted it. Matt, how many computers have you had do that now? Um, I think twice on the same computer. So I'll explain the situation so it's a little bit different. So I had one where I updated its hard drive, and what I had done was I literally – it was a laptop, and I literally just uh, cloned the previous hard drive. Now, the cloning software uh, was a third-party software, and it said there was no errors, no problems, whatever. I put the put the hard drive in, and uh, booting was slow and stuff, but, I mean, it was a hard drive. It was slow in the old one, too. I just upped the size, I think, and um, upped the size and up the RPM, I think, of the drive. But anyway, um, I – was using it. I used it for maybe two or three days. And then I went to your house because we were going to be working on some stuff. And this is this is well over a year ago now. And mm-hmm. uh, anyway, so I went to your house and we were going to be working on some things. And I remember I tried to copy a file because I was trying to update someone's website. I was trying to put up these new documents. And I said, well, that's weird. It just garbled the file name. And then I saw that it was starting to try to sync a garbled file name. And OneDrive started to freak out. I said, oh, oh shit, what the hell is going on here? So I, I cut it. I cut it out. And I moved it into the desktop and then it started to like fill the desktop up. Like it started to just have corrupted files, like ghost files everywhere with like garbled names. So I tried to delete some stuff and then I, I, and so it deleted, like I went to the recycle bin, but some of them weren't deleted. Like they weren't moved into the recycle bin, but I was like, okay, I'm going to empty the recycle bin of what's there. I went to the recycle bin and everything, including stuff that I deleted like days prior to this issue were all garbled. And I was like, okay, I got to (laughs) restart. So I tried to restart it and it just like wouldn't boot up. And on this particular laptop, they have like this recovery, like, uh, I guess it's like a bit of flash, flash storage on there that has like the, like the, the store, the, um, like the, the factory OS, like ready to reinstall. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't go for that right away. I, I kept trying to do the recovery tools. Nothing was working. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't check disk. It wouldn't do this. It wouldn't do that. And we were under the assumption, oh, this hard drive has actually failed. 
It wasn't that. The hard drive's right beside me right now, and it works. Um, it was quite literally Windows. We don't know. I don't know if it was Windows or if it was the cloning process. To be clear, but it like totally fucked up. The data was unbelievably corrupt. Like I've never seen a hard drive this corrupt. I had to like w- go back to Windows eight, and I because that's what the laptop came with, and I was using Windows ten at the time to go back to Windows eight and do the upgrade again. Mm-hmm. It was a mess. And like the only way to fix this was we even tried a USB stick with Windows 10 on it. That didn't work. We had to go back to Windows 8, completely wipe that drive clean, and then upgrade all the way through. And it took for freaking ever because it's a hard drive. Um, later, I updated to an SSD and I just did a fresh install of Windows 10 on that thing. But regardless, that was my experience with that. That was a that was a nightmare. Like that was really yeah. bad. Um and then I had another one on that same computer um, after we had fixed it. So this was in, like before I got an SSD and after I had that problem at your house. Uh, I was at a buddy's house and we, we were playing some games. And uh, then I, you know, I kind of just like left my laptop on. He left his computer on. We went to go grab some food, came back. And my computer was uh, just had like a like the spinning wheels. So There's like the little dots in a circle and had like that loading wheel spinning. And it was just stuck there with a black screen. I thought, oh, that's weird. And it just, it was just stuck there. We, I tried everything. I couldn't get it to boot past that. I couldn't, I tried everything. So I literally just like, you, he had a spare computer. So I like booted into his spare computer so we could kind of get on with it. And I put this computer or my, like my laptop, uh, I put that on a spare table, still plugged in and I let, let it load. It took like 35 minutes and it booted up and I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then it just did, started doing that every single time I booted up. Fantastic. And people, people were like, oh, it's this driver problem. It's this, it's that, it's this. And I was like, this is, this is insane. Like, like what is going, like, this is a, this is a, well, I mean, it's upgraded from Windows 8, but it's still a fresh Windows 10. I had no files on that Windows 8. Like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was just jank. So, I mean, a fresh, fresh, fresh install on an SSD did fix it. Like an absolutely fresh install with no, no file backup, nothing other than the fact that I sunk, I did my syncing with OneDrive. Um... But that was a fucking disaster. Like to 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 be blunt, that was an absolute disaster. Yeah, um, that was bad. And yeah, I mean, and I I attribute that to it to an update. I think that the unskippable updates, which is our next point, I think mm-hmm. that an unskippable update came in. It tried it tried to upgrade my or update my graphics driver because people were saying that if it's a black screen with the spinning wheel, it's trying to do something with the graphics driver. Mm-hmm. And I and I I attribute it. Then I didn't see it because it was automatic, but I, it just so happened to be when the computer was not active, I was away from the computer, so that's when it tries to do its updates to, to not interrupt you, and it just it just totally janked that thing. Like, that thing was destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, I, those unskippable updates, like, the, I've had countless times where they've delayed a meeting. Um, that I'm not even going to mention those, but the one, the one time that really sticks out was I was at a client's uh, house just doing some, like, random IT work uh on the side for him and i just had to you know quickly restart his computer to uh because i uninstalled some applications and i just wanted to do a like a fresh restart uh and i was about to leave because like i was just you know finishing up and all of a sudden uh the restart was it wasn't letting me restart because there was an update yeah and i didn't want to do the update because i knew like i didn't i didn't want to waste that time didn't want to waste my client's time didn't want to waste my time uh and so i just I didn't know what to do, but I, so I just pressed the update. I was hoping it was going to be a quick one. Uh, well, it wasn't. It was another, another one of those random times when Windows Update took, I'm not even sure how long because I had to leave. Uh, I waited for an hour. 
No, I'm for sure. Like, I'm not, I'm not sure how long. It, it might have been, like, seven days for all I know. Like, <laughs> I don't understand what was causing it. No idea. But um, it, was, it wasn't it was an SSD. And I've noticed that Windows 10 in general does not run on an SSD. I mean, when I say does not run, you don't have a good user experience. It is un. It is unfucking. I'm just, I'm gonna swear again. It yeah, you're fucking gonna... <laughs> believably slow. Yeah, like it, it. It is not. I'm. I'm gonna say it. It's not usable. If you're using Windows 10 right now with an SSD and you're doing any sort of web development work, please stop. Please like use that extra hundred dollars that you've made from anything and just invest in a in an SSD, please. Like I, I'm, I'm begging you, because it's just bad for everyone involved, including your mental sanity and including everything, every everyone in your family. Uh, yeah, the S- SSDs are a must, and I think Microsoft should honestly make it so that people are just like, an SSD is required to run Windows 10, because having this terrible experience will really hinder their like you know good, good the good stuff that Windows 10 has, and I like agree. we're not we gonna get agree. we're not gonna get to the good stuff here because we've kind of already talked about it enough. Uh, but there is a lot of good stuff in Windows 10, um, in my opinion. But you're never going to see it if you're not using an SSD, unfortunately. It's just going to be a stuttering, slow hard drive at 100% mess. 40, 40, 40 minute boot up time on my laptop. That's that, why that I switched to a new RPM and I couldn't handle it and I had to have to redo an SSD. Yeah, like, I mean, it's worse For, than 40 it's, minutes. It's worse than using Windows 95. I, I'm putting it out there. Like it's there's because no it, way it's doing too much. It's like a phone. It's checking location. It's doing this. Yeah. It's like doing it's like checking location. It's running Cortana. It's so, checking the the it, OneDrive. It's doing the scans. It's doing this and that and the other thing. And if you think about it, your hard drive, if it can only do one task a second, let's just hypothetically one task a second, literally it it literally gets in a queue line. Yeah. So if it's like open Steam, the game client Steam, open Steam, it's a hundred tasks back. Yeah. And what if one task takes more than a second? Now it's like, you know, it's all fucked around, and yeah. then the, the lawn gets too long, and it, the, it starts to act really poorly, and then that's just opening Steam. Then you gotta sign in, it has to access the hard drive to figure out what games you're running, it has to, like, do all this other stuff, you're on, you're on frickin' Chrome, Chrome's checking shit, like, it is... I didn't believe Mike. I literally was like, I was like, no, I'm buying a 7200 RPM drive, and, like, I know... The I recommended against it. I, I, told, yeah. I told you, you not to do that multiple times. Multiple times, and I 100% agree with him. I literally will not, will not use a computer with a hard drive in it. Now, yeah. it is not happening because it I is. Won't, I won't even fix a un- computer with a hard drive in it, let alone use it. Well, I have a friend who likes to do Twitch streaming and stuff like that. We had a problem with OBS, and he had to restart. And he's like, "I'll be back in 20 minutes." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "I'll be back in 20 minutes, maybe 30." <laughs> That's what he said, like legitimately. And he's like, "Oh yeah, that's just how long the computer takes to start up." I'm like, "What the hell is going on here?" Yeah. Like these guys are like using these hard drives still, and like so this like what I always say to people is. SSDs are the real snake oil of computers. Yep. They, it really works. Yep. And, it, and like, I'm sure that Windows or the Microsoft team could make regular hard drives still work and still be okay. But the problem is, and I guarantee this is what happens, on initial install, on a hard drive, Windows 10 works fine. Oh, yeah. On the, the first week or so, maybe even less than a week, but the first couple of days or so, it's working like, you know, like any other operating system. It's fine. It's a little bit slower than SSD, but it's not like, it's not that noticeable. You could still use it. It's not terrible. The problem happens after a, about a week or so when other stuff starts piling up in the background, when there's a bunch of like anti-malware executables running and all that and super fetch and a million other things running. When it starts building up on, on, on loads, everything starts to slow down. But the problem is, is that none of these Microsoft employees, and I'm going to, I'm going to make a general assumption that not a single Microsoft employee 
has a has a regular hard drive as their main boot drive in their computer. I'd really hope not. Yeah, but I mean, it's like it, it just it makes sense, right? Like if you if you are a Microsoft employee, you're either running a Surface laptop or you're like you have a computer with a, a regular like with an SSD in it because it's just like Surface economic Studio. economically it's very affordable now. It's not like SSDs are these like luxurious items. No, they're not. They're they're very very affordable. Most laptops, even sub five hundred dollar laptops, are now getting SSDs in them. So it really doesn't make sense for a Microsoft employee to run a hard drive as their main boot drive. So I'm I'm, I'm thinking that that has to be the main reason why they're not like fully addressing this issue because they're like none of their employees are seeing it. And like they'll be like, oh, we'll test it on a hard drive. They'll load up Windows on the hard drive, click around for like a day, and then be like, oh, this is working fine. Also, it's it's known too, like if you were to bring your computer to a, to a like a computer repair shop, they yeah. would literally just say, "Is there an SSD in there?" Like that yeah. that like you know what I mean like that's an upgrade that you can do. You can have a you can have a slow experience if you want. It's still gonna work. Like it's still gonna run everything that you you'd be able to. Yeah. And 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 to be clear, like I use mechanical drives to store things because it's oh, cheaper yeah. per megabyte, like significantly. So like I I have I have like I have three hard drives right beside me. Like mm. you know I edit off of them. They're fine. But running this is the thing is running Windows and then running things, whether it be a movie, a game, the drive. What happened was that? That was weird. Uh, the driver or anything like that. Running any of that. Is at the same time as the OS, no, no go, no chance, zero yeah. percent chance. Yeah. So okay, yeah. I mean, I think that covers the wind uh, unskippable updates, and I think we added one with the uh, the hard drive and versus SSD uh, from Windows 10. But uh, let's move on to another interesting one that Matt and I have a lot of back and forth on, um, and I think this will be the last one since we're getting to a very very significant time frame for our for our podcast. Yeah, but the, uh, two hours here. <laughs> yeah, almost two hours. So we're, troubleshooting steps are ridiculous. And what that oh, means God, is, fuck. yeah, I'll, I'll just oh. say my story. Um, I ha- I bought Gears of War on the Windows Store, which, again, I'm not even going to talk about. I-, I mentioned it because I'm hoping that you know. But, yeah, Windows Store. I bought Microsoft Gears of War 4 on the Windows Store. Excuse and- me, excuse me, sir. I'm looking at the icon. It's actually the Microsoft Store fine microsoft store and it's the app store for everyone for everyone to be clear not the yeah. physical locations yeah not the, yeah it's the app store on all the windows 10 devices so i bought it there great that they offer it i love that they're offering xbox games on windows now for the most part um it ran it runs pretty well but all of a sudden i come back to like kind of like a windows update situation where i i go back to the game and an error message pops up and i'm like okay and it's an error message from microsoft because it's one of their developed games and it's on the, from running from their store um, and it says something and I, you know, copy paste that error into Google, go into a Microsoft, the first link, the Microsoft form where they have a Microsoft employee there and a bunch of people talking and a Microsoft employee chimes in and he says to fix this, just go to the start menu, type in reset into the search, go to <laughs> reset, reset my PC and just reset your PC and then reinstall the game. <laughs> <laughs> and and this was like a this was a Microsoft employee, like this was someone of on Microsoft's official forums. A Microsoft employee said to fix a game not launching error, a, a, a Gears of War four not launching, to go in and reset your PC. Yeah, yeah. To for a game not launching. The next yep. comment down from the Microsoft employee was another person saying 
just right click on the game and said verify say verify cache <coughs> and that worked and that fixed it <laughs> <laughs> it was maybe a five-minute process to verify the cache. Right, they had right. to re-download some files. Yep. They have their own... Like, they have a fix built in, but their Microsoft employee literally just tells people... And this is like... Matt can attest to this. Any problem you have, any problem with Microsoft, your calculator doesn't work, your... Uh, your I don't know, your window file explorer stutters one time. Like, one time, any sort of problem you have, if you ask a Microsoft employee on the hardware forum... Their first, and I mean their exact first response, will be to reset your PC. With the exception of if if Microsoft has a specific tool, like Windows Update Fixer for Windows Seven, for example, they'll they'll usually Again, give you. We're that. talking about Windows Ten. Windows, yeah, yeah. Windows yeah. Seven. This wasn't an issue because it wasn't as easy to like the. They made it super easy to reset your PC and keep all your files. Right. They yeah. Did oh that yeah. For, they did that for a reason. My favorite feature, and I, I I said this when I installed Windows 10, I said my favorite feature is the fact that I can reset my PC and walk away and it'll do it itself. Yeah. Like, it'll just reset itself. Yeah. And I know that that sounds, like, totally ridiculous and ludicrous, but, like, I was having a problem last week where my one screen wasn't turning on, I couldn't figure out whether it was the driver, when it, whether it was Windows, because it would boot up and it would post, so, like, the BIOS would show on both my screens, I have two screens, show on both my screens, and then when Windows would, like, boot up and get into the, the screen, like, the lock screen where I go to sign in, it would it would like only go to my secondary monitor and it wouldn't detect my other monitor. I'd have to like, you know, press the project screen or I'd have to unplug the monitor and plug it back in. It was a bit kind of a mess and I kind of got it to be more stable now. Yeah. Um, but like, it was just weird. Cause it was like, well, it's working at the post. Like it's just windows interjecting and it's just not working. And I had, to my knowledge, it was, there had been no update. Um, so I don't know what happened. And my first, my first thing I thought of was, well, actually, I shouldn't say the first. First thing I thought of was I could reinstall the driver for my GPU. And then my second thought was it might be easier for me to reset and have it do that too. Yeah. That, I mean, hats off to them for making the reset process so easy. But come on, guys. Just do a little bit. Like, just Google your own problems. Like, there's people out there that have solved them. Like this guy with the cache. Every every programming, or, or sorry, every troubleshooting tree, or not, and, I, and I'm saying that as a blanket statement, a generalization, Generally, in my opinion, every troubleshooting tree results in reset at some point. And at some point, but and not I, the I, first thing. I believe that could be the catch-all, but I I agree it shouldn't be early in the troubleshooting steps. Like what? Unless it's something like some stuff is very like, oh, that's fucked. We need to reset. Yes. You know, some stuff is very much like that. Like, oh, I can only see half a screen, but my screen works on other operating systems. All right, yeah. we're re- we're we're gonna re- we're gonna reset this. Like, yes. fair enough. But like other things, like a game. Like we gotta understand something here is we're we're in Canada and we got I mean I have fiber now but that this is a brand new thing we have generally again generally slow expensive internet mm-hmm. and for you to you know get all your reset your PC download all the updates again which are gigabytes in size and yeah. then download the game which is gigabytes in size which is a hundred gigs the Gears of War gigs. four is a hundred gigs. On my old internet connection before this, it would have taken 100 <laughs> hours. It was one gig an hour on average. I, I shouldn't say one before. We had like an interim one, but we had some problems with them. But yeah. um, 100 hours to download it. Yeah. And that kills the internet, by the way. You start downloading, no one else can use the internet. So, you know, so you've down, got down what, like over, over three days of no internet access. Just yep. to just, 
Microsoft employee, employee told me to do it. I downloaded Battlefield. One of the best things on Steam was I used to just put the limiter on and then leave Steam on all the time. Yeah. Because I it would like I had unlimited da- I had unlimited data, but I just had like real slow speed, so I would just download at a pace that would not interrupt the other internet, and it would just download at all times. So there, I was always downloading on Steam. Yep. Now, admittedly, like it was serviceable for the regular thing, but again, like now, if it's like download 100 gigs, I'm like, okay, it might take like an hour. It might take like two hours. Like I'm fine with that. I got a hun- I think it's a hundred something symmetrical or something. I don't remember, but mm-hmm. it's it's fast. Like it's good, and I could upgrade if I wanted. But like the thing is, is like with with people who have like cable. Like cable is pretty good. Like cables cables all right. You know, sixty meg down or something like that. Cable is pretty good. But people who have DSL, you're fucked. Hundred percent, you're fucked. Like there's no chance. Like you're, like it's just like oh we gotta redo this. No, no problem. I'll 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 I will call you in four days. Yeah. I'll call you in four days and I'll check the status because it ain't gonna be done. <laughs> I'll just see what's going on. Like, you know what I mean? It, I downloaded, uh, I play a lot of video games. It's probably obvious at this point, but I, I, I downloaded Battlefield four years ago on my Xbox. I had my original DSL connection. I had to keep pausing it. I'd keep downloading it in, in the evenings and, uh, you know, early morning. And uh, it would kill the internet when it was up, and it took four days. Yep. Like, that was when I started realizing, like, fuck, like, files are getting big. Because before it was like, oh, I got to download something. But that was like an event, download mm-hmm. something. Now it's done. Now it's yeah. like, oh, no. Because, like, using stuff, like even playing stuff or whatever, is very little bit of bandwidth being used up. But literally pulling the file in to your house, like pulling it down from the cloud, is where the and, – and, and uploading – is where, like, the bandwidth gets used up. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, my, now my pipe is full. You know, I can't, I can't send any more data. I can't receive any more data mm-hmm. and, you know, re- you know, kind of a shitty router doesn't, doesn't help either, but that, uh, but that, you know, that type of situation is going to happen to people and, you know, reset this PC is really great for stuff like that, but like people who have metered connections are going to have problems and now they're going to yeah. be back a few updates if they don't, if they don't manually update, like it's, this isn't, this isn't good. Like, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't agree with the first step being reset your PC. Like, you <laughs> just do do a tiny little bit of research, please. No, no, just go down to that little start menu, press that settings cog, and yeah, let's get her going. Yeah. But yeah, I think we're. I think that sums up our rant on Microsoft. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say maybe we should do Word, but I think that's gonna start spark another like thirty minute conversation. Yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> let's move on with it. Uh, well, to be clear, I'm just going to suffix this with, I use Microsoft on everything. I- I'm only dissing them because I want them to be better. Yes. I am, I, I am, I am the same way. Uh, just please, please be better. Uh, I still like most of their services, and most of the time they are fairly good. Well, I would say Windows 10 is the best Windows I've used. Yes. As a blanket statement for everything. Um, yeah. And I have a tablet. And the tablet is not great, but I have a tablet. I have a, a couple of... Uh, I have a couple of laptops and I have my desktop and they're all Windows. And we use I use Office 365 Personal and we use Microsoft services for our email. So like like for our work email. Mm-hmm. And we use OneDrive as we've discussed. So there's like, you know, it's totally use it's totally useful. We're not we're not dissing you that way, but there's those things that we just discussed and with all the few others that we're gonna skip right now are come on boys. Let's uh let's dial it in. But I think we can conclude this episode. Quite a lengthy episode. Our first UX one, though. So, I mean, it's going to happen. And every episode gets longer. I don't I don't know what's going on. We put less notes in. We're like, oh, let's cut down the notes. Uh, we're going to talk, you know, eight and a half hours. But anyway, <laughs> in conclusion, uh, thanks for listening. And make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at 
HTML, all the things on the Facebook and Instagram. You can find us at HTML Everything on Twitter. You can search us up on Medium. You can search us up on GitHub and as well as a bunch of other services. We're going to have a bunch of social links in the show notes. I'm also going to be putting the link to the article that we just covered where we got all those rules. That's going to be in the show notes. I think I mentioned that before. As well as our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash HTML, all the things, and you can check out the tiers there and uh, choose which which reward tier you want to sign up for if you want to support the show. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you're listening to this on, and we are signing off. 